This episode of the Mountain Mysteries is brought to you in part by Little Diva's Balloon Decorating. Make your next party or get-together an event with Little Diva's. For over 11 years, Little Diva's Balloon Decorating has turned events into experiences and celebrations into parties. Birthdays, anniversaries, weddings, family reunions, graduations, and any event you can imagine. Little Diva's can bring it to life. Specializing in balloon sculptures, cake table, and doorway arches and more. Get a hold of Little Diva's now and make your celebration, reunion, or business function one they'll remember. Call 606-791-5616. That's 606-791-5616. Visit them on Facebook.com forward slash Little Diva Party Decorations and see for yourself. Little Diva's, it's where the memories begin. Hi, I'm Chris Lone, the creator, producer, and the voice behind the Mountain Mysteries. If you would like a unique voice for your business or organization for either social media, radio, or television, something that stands out and is different from the rest of the pack, that will work with you to sell the benefits of your product or service and get people into the door or on your webpage, then feel free to give us a call. We can also do telephone voices on hold. And it's all a lot more affordable than what you'd think. Sloan Studios is a lot more than just creating the podcast that you hear with the Mountain Mysteries. We'd love to be the voice of your business. But it is limited. For example, we will not do competing businesses within 100 miles of each other. Let's say that you are an attorney or you have an auto dealership. If someone else comes to us wanting a marketing campaign, they would have to be at least 100 miles away from your business. So spots are very limited. If you want a different and unique voice, something that will stand out on the radio or your social media page, then call 606-331-0029 or email us chris.sloan at icloud.com. That's C-H-R-I-S dot S-L-O-N-E at icloud.com. Let us work to promote the benefits of your product or services. A production of Sloan Studios. The following may contain strong language and adult situations with depictions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. The mountains are as old as time itself. And if they could talk, well, there'd be no doubt that they'd rattle on forever in a day. From Quebec, Canada to Mexico... From Germany to Australia, Virginia to California, the mountainous areas span the globe. And with them, mysterious sightings, strange sounds, ghostly apparitions, all that and so much more. But it all makes up just a very small part of what people report. Then, well... After that comes the tales of murder, betrayal, deceit, and even in some cases, cover-up. You know, now that I think about it, it's no wonder how the conspiracy theory community developed to start with. When people do such a poor job of trying to convince other people of an obvious falsehood or lies, and when it's so evident that these lies are spread as easily as fertilizer, well... Individuals began to speculate. But the problem with speculation is that all too many times we get it backwards. We develop theories to fit our own conclusions, when instead, we should be trying to find the facts of any individual case and see what the evidence leads to. 
if there's any evidence and if there's enough of it. This is tricky, though, because you see the truth and facts can be two very different things. Facts are facts. They are scientific truth, and they can almost never be disputed. But a lot of times, people get that mixed up with the truth. You see, the truth depends greatly upon our own point of view. And these views may vary and differ from one person to another. Well, one person's viewpoint may be completely different from another's. Views are as different as the people that have them. In this episode of The Mountain Mysteries, we lay down a mix of truth, fact, and possibly fiction. Well, that's going to be for you to decide, but uh, in this episode, you'll hear about haunted locations, creatures that we have no understanding of, murders that are still unsolved, and speculate as to why. These are the Mountain Mysteries, and this is episode number 62, If These Hills Could Talk, a collection of tales, hauntings, and murder. I will be the last to fall, I won't shed a tear for them to see. Over 24% of the 1.9 billion square acres in America alone, the mountains that so many people call home, also play host to some of the most staggering mysteries in the world. The missing. And she said, I knew I wasn't there anymore. The murdered. All my emotions just went blank, just like, just blank. And I still live with that today. I think about that so much today as he was in that water. Strange creatures. Whatever it was that was standing up. I'm out here looking through the window now and I don't see anything. I don't want to go outside. I mean, it was a, nope, we need to get out of town. Unexplained lights and sightings. It does not look like an airplane. They come together and then they separate and they just keep doing this all the time. These stories may be strange. They may be sad. They may be odd but they are mysterious. These are the Mountain Mysteries, and now your host, Chris Sloan. It's really not all that surprising that a 480 million year old mountain range would inspire legends of mysterious animals darting through the murky forest, or strange and ghostly apparitions that have been seen. Cold chills being felt as if someone were watching you. And let us not fail to mention the odd lights appearing in the night sky that have little or no explanation. For generations, myths and superstitions have been handed down through the verbal beliefs of native tribes and settlers getting a foothold in our culture. Some academics believe that the danger and isolation of early mountain life gave birth to many of the legends that still exist today, banging around in our brains and compelling us to take an extra look over our shoulders should we ever consider finding ourselves alone 
in a dusky forest or a creaky old cabin. Michael Rivers, lead investigator of the Smoky Mountain Ghost Trackers and an author who has written extensively about Appalachian and mountain folklore, says that the Appalachian Mountains are seasoned with paranormal activity. Though it's hard to say why stories of unexplained events pop up all over the world, Rivers says that fear can easily get the best of people. He goes on to state that your psyche has a tendency to get away from you. If you hear things that go bump in the night and you swear you don't have a pipe rattling or anything like that, well then, you think it's just a spirit, he says, or you happen to catch something out of the corner of your eye and you swear it's a ghost. It's not that you're crazy, it's just that your imagination and your emotions can fool you. Whether our collective imaginations are running wild, or we are really sensing something otherworldly, stories of ghosts, UFOs, terrifying man-sized animals, and other hair-raising stories are abound in the mountains all over the world. We take a look at some of the most popular legends, unsolved murders, and phenomena that we found to date. This is something that we've never addressed on the Mountain Mysteries because there's so much talk and speculation and so many episodes about this creature. But let's just suppose for a moment that you're deep in the woods when you spot some kind of a sudden movement through the trees, maybe. The animal, or whatever it is, is large, eight to ten feet, covered in dark fur. Is it a bear? How the hell could a bear be that big? So you stand there, frozen in place, eyes locked to that shadowy spot in the woods, waiting for the animal to move. Your heart's pounding in your chest, and all of a sudden, you come to realize, eerily, that the sounds of the forest have died. You look down and on the ground. There's an imprint. Looks like a human foot, but it's a lot bigger. Nearly two feet long and eight inches wide. Suddenly, you know what you've seen. And it definitely was not a black bear. Known around the world as Sasquatch or Yeti, Bigfoot is an ape-like creature that hides itself in the deep, dark forest, leaving behind footprints so large that they could not possibly belong to any man. Now, this tale, legend, or folklore, or whatever you want to call it, of Bigfoot, has been traced all the way back to the European wild man, a mythical figure that had hair all over his body and lived like a beast. The wild man can also be found in literature as early as the 2nd century BC. The stories of Bigfoot also are found all over in Native American culture and oral traditions. And the unexplained ape has been studied by scientists and, well, let's face it, scrutinized all over the internet. Jane Goodall has even weighed in on Bigfoot's existence, telling reporters that she wants to believe that Bigfoot is real. Well, there's no doubt about whether or not he's real to Phil Smith, 
Smith from Gate City, Virginia is the co-founder of the Blue Ridge Monsters and Legends Facebook group, where members come to share their stories of unexplained encounters with the hairy bipedal creature, or whatever this thing is. When Smith was a boy, he says that he had his own run-in with Bigfoot. Smith says that one cold November night he was riding his bike home after dark and he heard a friend run up behind him. He said this friend was out of breath and anxious. He said, something's following me. When I move, it moves. When I stop, it stops. Well, scared out of his wits, Smith took a shortcut home through his grandparents' backyard. As he rode past the grapevines, he heard something moving through the brush behind him. He turned to look. He said he had to do it. He said, there beside the grapevines was a seven-foot-tall creature. It was leaning forward, making a hump where its neck and back joined together. Smith said the moonlight was shining through its hair and it didn't make a sound. Needless to say, he said that he made a hasty departure home. In the shadowy skies above Brown Mountain, North Carolina, ghostly lights have been spotted in the sky for over a century. To a lot of eyewitnesses, the lights appear as glowing orbs that drift in the night sky above the mountain before they suddenly disappear or soundlessly exploding. The first reported sighting of the Brown Mountain Lights was back in 1913 by a fisherman who claimed to see odd red lights dancing above the horizon. Well, the sightings continued, and in 1922, the U.S. Geological Society took a look into it. They found that the Brown Mountain Lights were really just the headlights of cars or passing trains. But a major flood in 1916 changed that theory altogether. You see, the raging waters washed out the roads and bridges and took out power for several weeks, but... Those lights above Brown Mountain? Oh, they were still there in the night. Bluegrass songs claim that the lights are the ghost of a slave searching for his lost master. An episode of The X-Files reasons that the lights were caused by UFOs. Popular Native American folklore said that the bloody battles that occurred between the Cherokee and the Catawba tribes took place on that mountain and many lives were lost there. Now the legend claims that the lights are the ghosts of grieving women still searching the mountainside for the bodies of their fallen warriors. But not every story of the Brown Mountain Lights is steeped in superstition. It wasn't that long ago, back in July of 2016, the Charlotte Observer reported that Forest Service officers had reported close-up encounters on the Brown Mountain with beach ball-sized orbs that drifted by and then vanished. And in August of 2016, local TV station WLOS reported that scientists from Appalachian State University believed to have caught images on the Brown Mountain lights on two different digital video cameras. But scientists have not been able to determine what causes the lights. Could it be ball lightning or maybe naturally occurring mountain gases? Well, they're both two widely accepted theories. If you'd like to find out for yourself, the best time to see the Brown Mountain Lights is September through early November. The lights can be seen on the Blue Ridge Parkway at the Brown Mountain Light Overlook, located at milepost 310, 
or the Green Mountain Overlook at Milepost 301. The city of Morgantown, North Carolina, even recently helped to improve the Brown Mountain Overlook on North Carolina Highway 181 for the purpose of attracting curious visitors, hoping to catch a glimpse of these ghostly lights. The year was 1966. The location, Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Located at the meeting of the Ohio and Kanawha Rivers, Point Pleasant, West Virginia was a sleepy little town of a couple of thousand people. But it was shaken by an unidentifiable visitor on November 12, 1966, when gravediggers at a cemetery in Clendenin, West Virginia, which is about 80 miles from Point Pleasant, claimed to have seen a man with wings lift off from a tree and fly over their heads. Well, three days later, two young couples were driving together near an abandoned World War II TNT plant, about five miles north of Point Pleasant, when they said that they saw this large flying man with a 10-foot wingspan and eyes that glowed red. They tried to flee the mysterious creature and sped down the road at around 100 miles an hour, they said, but, well, the creature wasn't about to give up so easily and followed them back to Point Pleasant city limits. They were so frightened by their experience that they went directly to the police Newspapers, over the course of a very short amount of time, dubbed the creature Mothman after the Batman comics. The national press picked up the story, and the Mothman became a sensation. Over the following week, there were at least eight more reported sightings in and around Point Pleasant of a man like Bird with large wings. One such account came from volunteer firefighters Captain Paul Yoder and Benjamin Enochs. According to the Gettysburg Times, Yoder and Enix claimed to have seen a very large bird with large red eyes. Now, as you can imagine, of course, others refuted the sightings, believing that residents of Point Pleasant were actually seeing a sandhill crane that had wandered out of its normal migration route. There were hundreds of eyewitnesses, according to Jeff Wamsley, owner of Point Pleasant's Mothman Museum. Well, Jeff was born and raised in that town. Walmsley was only five years old when the Mothman showed up and started to terrorize his neighbors. Well, over the following years, the oddities continued. Reports of UFOs and suspicious men in black began streaming into the Point Pleasant authorities, and the Mothman sightings continued. Then, ten days before Christmas in 1967, an unspeakable tragedy struck. While the silver bridge that tied Point Pleasant to Gallipolis, Ohio, was teeming with rush hour traffic, the bridge collapsed, killing 46 people. Reportedly, some claimed to have seen the Mothman at the bridge shortly before its collapse and believed its presence was a harbinger of doom. The fact that the UFO sightings, men in black presence, and the silver bridge disaster all happened during the Mothman sightings intrigues a lot of people, according to Jeff. He continued to state that it's a fascinating turn of events for a small town like Point Pleasant. Now, for his part, oh, Wamsley does believe that the people of Point Pleasant encountered something out of the ordinary. 
He said that he just doesn't believe that many people could have made up the same kind of story at the same time. But what it was that they saw, he says he doesn't believe could ever be truly explained or solved. You can hear the episode in its entirety. It's episode number three, Terror in the Skies, The Mountain Mystery of the Mothman of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And you can only find it right here on The Mountain Mysteries. According to Cherokee legend, a long time ago, before the Cherokee moved into the Smokies, there was a race of small bearded white men who lived in the mountains. According to author Julia Montgomery Street, whose story of this mysterious race is displayed in the Cherokee County Historical Museum, the men possessed all the land from the Little Tennessee River to Kentucky and with a line of fortification from one end of their domain to the other. The men who lived in rounded log cabins had large blue eyes and fair white skin and were sunblind during the day. So they only came out at night to hunt, fish, wage war, and build their fortifications. Because they could only see in the dark, the Cherokee called them the Moon-Eyed People. Now some believe that they were descendants of a small group of Welshmen who came to America long before the Spanish and settled in the Smoky Mountains sometime around the year 1170. Well, as the legend goes, the Moon-Eyed people eventually abandoned their home, or they were driven from it, and they went west, never to be seen or heard of again. Wanda Stalkup is the director of the Cherokee County Historical Museum in Murphy, North Carolina. The museum is home to a statue that was found at the confluence of the Valley and Hiawassee Rivers in the early 1800s. Now, the soapstone statue is 37 inches tall, and it weighs 300 pounds. A lot of people believe it's a depiction of the Moon-Eyed People. Now, Stalkup says that everyone has their own opinion. The statue depicts twins, but they are short like the Moon-Eyed People, with little round flat faces. Some people say that the statue represents the two rivers and others believe it is a man and a woman. When archaeologists came and looked at the statue, they said that they'd never seen anything like it to compare it to. That's according to Stalkup. One reason is because they're standing, not sitting or kneeling. They think it might even be pre-Cherokee. Now, whether or not, a blue-eyed race of sun-blind white men once inhabited the Blue Ridge long before the Europeans are known to have discovered America. Well, that remains unknown. But... There's one thing for certain. The legend continues to live on. John and Lucy Bell were farmers who settled in Adams, Tennessee around 1803. Now, they lived a pretty quiet life on their land, at least until 1817, when the family began experiencing odd and unexplainable occurrences in their home. They began to hear noises, things like scratching, knocks on the walls, and chains being dragged across the floor. 
That's according to Pat Fitzhugh, an author and historian who has written two books about the events that occurred on the Bell Farm. As time passed, the noises became so severe and repeated that it nearly drove the family crazy. Then, the Bell's two daughters began complaining of something, trying to pull at their bed covers and pinch them while they slept. For over a year, the Bells remained quiet about the strange events taking place in their home. Well, they were really concerned about what members of the church might think. But the persecution simply wouldn't stop, and the Bell family, John Bell specifically, finally talked to one of his neighbors about the strange things that were happening in his house. His neighbor came over and experienced the same kind of disturbances. And before long, people all over the East and Southeast knew about it, according to Fitzhugh. People soon started traveling to the Bell Farm to experience the Bell Witch, the supernatural events they wanted to see for themselves. Some came out of curiosity. Others were skeptics trying to debunk what the Bells were going through. Over time, it seems that this thing, whatever it was, fed off attention in people's fears, according to Fitzhugh. It eventually developed a whispering voice, and within a year it could speak. People have written down and passed it through the generational accounts of what this thing allegedly said, according to Fitzhugh. Fitzhugh said that it liked to argue religion and make fun of people, except for Mrs. Bell. It stated that its purpose was to kill John Bell. The poltergeist received the name Kate after it claimed to be the witch of a local lady named Kate Batts. When John Bell died December 20th, 1820, Kate took credit, insisting she had poisoned him because he was a bad man. But after John's death, things began to return to normal on the Bell farm. That is, until Betsy Bell, the Bell's youngest daughter, became engaged to a local man named Joshua Gardner. Well, then Kate reavowed her scorn and disapproval about Betsy Bell's upcoming marriage. Fitzhugh said that she talked Betsy into breaking off the engagement with Joshua. A short time later, the poltergeist said that she was going to leave, but promised to return in seven years. And it was seven years when, indeed, Kate did return, visiting John Bell Jr., who was not living at the Bell Farm at the time. They allegedly talked for three nights about the past, the present, and the future, explains Fitzhugh. After that, the Bell Witch bid farewell and promised to return in 107 years. That would have been around 1935. Some said she returned. Some said she didn't, according to Fitzhugh. Now, the real story behind the tale of the Bell Witch has never been uncovered. Some people thought it, it was simply an act of the supernatural. Skeptics accused the Bell family of doing it by knowing how to act and using ventriloquism. Some thought they did it for the money. But the Bell family never charged a single cent to anyone staying over in their home. Though Fitzhugh has considered a lot of these theories, he says that he can't say one way or another what the Bell Witch truly was. He said that when you look at how long the story has endured, and how many people have put forth theories, doctors, lawyers, and preachers, back in the day, signed eyewitness manuscripts saying that they witnessed these things. Fitzhugh said it makes it more than just your standard folk tale.
It was in the late summer days of 1952, when two brothers named Edward and Fred May of Flatwoods, West Virginia, were in a hurry to get home to their mother, Kathleen May. They had to tell her something. What they'd seen. It was unexplainable. You see, they were out playing football at the playground of the Flatwood School. That's when they witnessed a bright UFO streak across the sky and land on the property of a local farmer. Well, she was interested, to say the least, but May and her sons and some other local boys headed out to that farm. It was nearing dusk. The sun was setting on a hot day when they saw something unidentifiable some kind of a thing in the woods. They saw an odd-shaped whatever it was that appeared to be glowing red with smoke and steam coming off of it. Andrew Smith, the executive director of the Braxton County CVB and curator of the Flatwoods Monster Museum, said that 17-year-old Eugene Lemon, a National Guardsman, had tagged along on this adventure and said he saw a pulsing light and pointed his flashlight towards it, revealing a pair of bright eyes in a tree and, quote, a ten-foot monster with a blood-red face and a green body that seemed to glow. The monster then hissed and floated towards the group, causing Lemon to scream and drop his flashlight. According to the newspaper reports, Several of the party fainted on the spot and vomited for several hours after they came back to town. Later, Mrs. May was quoted as saying the monster looked worse than Frankenstein. The group turned and ran down the hill immediately reporting what they saw to the local sheriff. And it wasn't but about an hour later that several men armed with shotguns came to the scene with Lemon. They were met with a horrible smell and, according to local reports saw slight heat waves in the air. Well, authorities didn't find much, according to Smith. What was found was gathered and sent to Washington, D.C., and it was never seen again. Now, Smith says what makes the Flatwoods monster so interesting is there weren't many UFO sightings back in the 1950s. The Flatwoods incident was only the second or third of its kind, and probably the first with so many witnesses. Smith said that it made national headlines. Today, on the main road into town, there is a sign that reads, Welcome to Flatwoods, home of the Green Monster. The UFO sighting, or whatever it was, is in the past, but it's not forgotten. There's not a consensus on what happened in Flatwoods that evening, according to Smith. You have your UFO true believers and skeptics who think that it was a misidentified barn owl. If you had to pick one, I'd say that the most commonly held thought is that the monster is a fun and interesting bit of folklore, according to Smith. Having to decide whether it's real or fake, well, that takes all the fun out of it. Coming up next on the Mountain Mysteries, unsolved murders, and are there spirits that still walk among us, seeking justice? Find out when we come back. 
For over 11 years, Little Diva Balloon Decorating has turned events into experiences and celebrations into parties. Let Little Divas worry about making your event the best it can be while you relax and enjoy it. Any event you can imagine, Little Divas can bring it to life. Specializing in balloon sculptures, cake table, and doorway arches, and more. Get a hold of Little Divas now and make your celebration, reunion, or business function one they'll remember. Call 606-791-5616 or visit them on Facebook.com forward slash Little Diva Party Decorations and see it for yourself. Little Divas, it's where the memories begin. Support the Mountain Mysteries on Patreon and get early access to all episodes. With three tiers, it's easy to choose what you want. Five and ten dollar tiers get you early access, plus free gear, behind the scenes bonus content and more. Plus access to interviews that would have wound up on the cutting room floor. Find out links on www.themountainmysteriespodcast.com and on facebook.com forward slash the mountain mysteries. Support the Mountain Mysteries and stay mysterious. You're listening to The Mountain Mysteries. Here's Chris Sloan. In the second episode of The Mountain Mysteries, we talked about Mamie Thurman. She may not be nationally recognized, but her name is known in and around the southern part of West Virginia and all through Kentucky. Who was Mamie? Mamie was a young woman living in the city of Logan back in the 1930s. But on June 22, 1932, her body was found and recovered on 22 Mountain near Holden, now known as 22 Mine Road. Holden is some 5 to 10 miles from Logan, West Virginia. According to medical authorities at the time, her death resulted instantly from a gunshot wound before her throat was cut from ear to ear. Found alongside the body was one shoe, her purse, which contained between 8 and $10 and two diamond rings and a wristwatch that were still on her person, thus ruling out robbery as the motive for her death. The arrest and eventual conviction of handyman Clarence Clemens, who was, by the way, an African-American, brought about a lot of questions in Logan. The investigation involved several prominent people in Logan at that time. The trial resulted in standing room only audiences with many people driving into the courthouse and bringing chairs with basket lunches. The funeral service drew a tremendous interest and was one of the most unusual ever held in the county. There was a total of 550 women and 30 men in attendance at the funeral. Well, after over 50 years, Thurman's half-brother returned to Logan for the purpose of placing a stone to properly mark her gravesite. But he ran into a little bit of trouble finding her grave. Records at the funeral home stated that she was buried in Bradfordsville, Kentucky. But a visit to that town proved wrong. Upon returning to Logan, a copy of the death certificate in the county courthouse stated that she was placed in the Logan Memorial Park at McConnell. A visit to that cemetery also failed to show a gravesite. Her brother never did find her grave. The questions surrounding the mystery of her murder have followed her to her final resting place. After extensive searching, her brother returned home without any way to locate his sister so he could place a memorial and allow her to rest in peace. A local legend is boomed with Mamie's story. Some say that she still stalks Holden 22 Mountain or 22 Mine Road. Tales and stories of her ghostly appearance cause one to wonder if she's still crying out for justice. 
Since her death, rumors have survived, and some feel her ghost will continue to walk up and down the mountainside until someone finally tells the truth about her death. Believe it or not. She is the very reason the Mountain Mysteries podcast began in the first place. She looked like a princess from a Disney film. She smiled and the room lit up. Her friendship changed people. It did me. This read like a tragedy from a movie script that to this day still leaves more people scratching and shaking their heads than nearly any other event that occurred in the sleepy little community of Paintsville, Kentucky in 1991. A beautiful 16-year-old girl found in the waters of Paintsville Lake. Well, so we thought at the time. That happened back in May of that year. Her mother, Sharon, found out in a very harsh and callous way. I remember a knock on the door around 1, 1 time frame and I got up and I opened the door and there was the sheriff which is uh, Gene Sire which I did recognize him but there was another guy with him that told me he was the coroner J.R. Frisbee and they just blatantly come out and said there's been an accident April she's dead just like that you know the coroner stated that the cause of death was accidental drowning but the well known fact that April could swim and swim very well in addition to contusions found on her body and an autopsy report that revealed no water in her lungs, added to a lurking suspicion that she was murdered. But who would have been the killer? Well, well, there's a long list of suspects there. A lot of suspicions that float around considering the fact that she was bullied by some of her classmates in both junior and high school in particular. And jealousy was a strong motive. Some people wanted to be April so badly that they actually changed their appearance. So I asked April one day, I said, April, I said, what does this Brenda look like? So we got in the truck and we went over to McDonald's. And Brenda come out of McDonald's, was walking down the sidewalk around, around McDonald's. And April said, there she is. The girl had had her hair colored dark. Now Brenda was a blonde, a mm -hmm. dirty blonde. Mm -hmm. She had cut her hair off short and dyed it dark brown, almost black. Which was the killer of April's. Uh-huh, and uh, April didn't want me to stop. She said, Mom, whatever you do, don't stop. Just go right on, don't stop. And that's all she would say about that, but she was terrified of this girl. She wasn't the only one to die that night at Paintsville Lake. A friend of hers named Timothy Hobart Stambo, who was quite well known to have a severe case of aquaphobia, was found submerged in that same lake not far from her. Oh, but it gets more and more interesting as far as these little tidbits of information are concerned. You see, there was a couple there that night. Out on a date that heard a vehicle pull up, and then they drove off, and then they came back. At which point the occupants began calling for help. That couple had been there a while and stated there was never any sounds of splashing or anything that anyone 
would expect to hear if someone was actually drowning there. And remember, April could swim quite well, actually. In fact, at some point in her life, she had spent some time as a lifeguard. As for Tim, well, that speculated that he wouldn't have been anywhere near a body of water any larger needed than to take a bath or a shower because of that fear of water that he had that was so strong. April's mother, Sharon, had a second independent autopsy performed on her daughter, and that also stated some interesting things, or some interesting things were found, we should say. For example, the hyoid bone was nowhere to be located. Now, maybe you're wondering to yourself exactly what is that bone? Well, the hyoid bone is found in the neck of every person and helps the throat to distinguish drinking from eating from breathing. It's not too prone to break or fracture on its own, but it's one of the first things examiners look for if strangulation is suspected, along with petechial hemorrhaging or bloodshot vessels in the eyes. And she appeared to have that. So much so that the ER doctor that night that attended to this case stated in his own words that many of the staff working the evening of May 19, 1991, well, they didn't think April had drowned at all. And that was only the beginning of what was wrong in this picture. Then there were even more things that would come to be that were odd. Like the bruising and busted knuckles on Timothy Stambo's body. Tim Pennington, April's brother, saw it for himself in the funeral home. And seeing the pump knots and, you know, the facial uh, bruising on him. And then his knuckles, I remember, was down to, I mean, you could see almost the bones in it. I mean, I remember seeing that skin peeled off from where, like, he'd been in some type of struggle. You know, if you're out there drowning and you can't swim and I jump in to save you, you know, your knuckles, yeah, you might hit me once and might try to push me under to stay afloat, mm -hmm. but your hands is not going to look like that. It was as if he had been in a fight for his life. Perhaps he was. And it was a fight to the bitter end. It's been more than three decades now that have passed, and the feelings of what really happened to April are as strong now as they were then. There's never been an arrest made yet, although the investigation's continuing into the tragedy at Paintsville Lake. You can hear the full episode on the Mountain Mysteries. It's episode number one, entitled Tragedy at Paintsville Lake. These are the Mountain Mysteries with Chris Sloan. In another heartbreak like that of April Pennington, James. Dwayne Lovelace was born 
in the same mountainous region of eastern Kentucky and suffered a similar fate. It was the summer of 2020, in June, when his grandmother, Mildred Terry Lovelace, received a call that would forever change their lives. That day I was at home and I was mowing grass, me and my grandson, and some one of his friends messaged me and said, Mildred, I heard Dwayne is dead. And I didn't know what to think, and I thought, so I, my friend, I had a friend to call me, and she said, Mildred, is Dwayne all right? And uh, so I never, I said, sure, he's working, because he's supposed to work in the backer field that day. So she turned around and she said, Mildred, if you don't care, would you please call and check on him? And I called my son and I said, Herbie, where is Dwayne? And he said, Mom, he went swimming. My heart sunk, literally sunk. 25 years. That's how long I was involved in broadcasting or have been behind a microphone in one form or another. It was longer than Dwayne was ever alive. And maybe that was some of the outpouring that I experienced. I've only done that a very few times. In this podcast series, once with April Pennington, and once with Dwayne Lovelace. But I mean, it was expected with April. I knew her, but with Dwayne... I felt the loss of never having known him and knowing that there was a very distinctive chance that I could have gotten to know him. But from that moment on, from the time Mildred received that call, as you can well imagine, their lives were changed forever. But there's more to this account than a family in grief. The Mountain Mysteries had been told by the Lovelace family that this was no accidental drowning. Apparently, Duane could swim quite well also. They believe this was murder. But why? And how? The coroner's report ruled it as an accidental drowning. Drowning? No one disputes that. Accidental? Well, the family has their own theories on that. Because how could anyone walk across a rock water up to their shoulders, be a talking, going to the big rock, then 30 seconds, don't hear anything, and look back, and Dwayne's gone. Is that what he said? That's what he said. No splash. No splash, no nothing. Just like vanished. No holler. But yet, Dwayne could swim. Yes. My son has swam multi times in this like right where he drowned. Plumb across it all the way to the other side of it, like nothing. So what do they really think happened? My honest opinion, I feel like he was held under the water. That's really, truly what I felt, that he was held. Because I heard there was like three gathered around him in that water. And they were playing pretty rough. And the lady that seen this got scared and took her kids and left. The kids were scared to death because they were uh, getting pretty rough. And they were drinking, the other three boys. Dwayne was not drinking. Well, the theories are there about the how. But what about the why? The motive? 
Motive means an opportunity. Well, in this particular case, opportunity had presented itself. Duane had gone swimming with some people, and there was the how, or the means, that you just heard the family talk about. But what about the motive? Well, it seems that Duane may have been involved with someone at the time who had someone else interested in her. Jealousy. That's always a big motive for murder. That and money. Grief is not a simple thing. It doesn't operate in a gray area. We all seem to carry it at some point or another in our lives. The best we can do is hope to learn new ways to deal with it, but it never quite goes away. It's always there lurking in the shadows at the moments that you would suspect most. And the very plain truth is this family has experienced enough of it. If I could say one thing to Dwayne, how much I really miss him, and I love him. And if I could, I'd trade places with him. I'd do it in a heartbeat. That boy was my life, and I live with this every day, knowing that I'm never gonna lay eyes on him again. Still asking for anyone that has any information, and we know you're out there. Contact authorities. Contact the Kentucky State Police. Contact your local sheriff's office, police department. Help this family ease the suffering. You can hear this episode in its entirety on the Mountain Mysteries. It's episode number seven, A Lake of Tears. It was a long time ago, 1949. And I don't think anyone could deny that things were so different back then. But there were signs of things to come. A beautiful 17-year-old Prestonsburg High School cheerleader named Muriel Baldridge, who went by Merle by her family and friends, was found murdered under a structure that her hometown has become, well, it's become famous for it. Now, indictments were handed down, but in the end, no one ever served prison time for Muriel's murder. To this day, she waits for justice. And in all likelihood, it'll never come. It was the summer of 1949 when Muriel and her friends had been out in the star city of Prestonsburg, Kentucky, enjoying some of the things that the town had to offer. Movies, games, a carnival. At the end of the day, she wanted her friends to come home and have a sleepover. But there were chores to be done and the girls went their separate ways. Now, they did try to talk Muriel into walking with him a little further, but she insisted she's taken that shortcut a thousand times to get home across the Prestonsburg Rainbow Bridge a thousand times, and she'd be perfectly fine. Little did she, or anyone for that matter, realize that it would be her last night on Earth. When the following day came and her lifeless body was discovered, so were other things. A bottle of whiskey, four roses to be specific, a string of pearls her aunt had given her to wear the day before, and 
the witnesses, oh my, the witnesses that came forward after the event. They said that they'd heard screams in the night. Oh, that, well, they thought it was nothing. Local kids at the carnival making a fuss and thrill-seeking, that kind of thing. Turns out that it was more than likely Muriel screaming for help from her cowardly and probably drunk killer. The element of sexual assault had been ruled out by the coroner and examiner at the time, and she was eventually laid to rest in a funeral that the entire town had closed down to attend. There wasn't a floral shop that had a petal to be sold in the Star City. You can hear this episode in its entirety on the Mountain Mysteries. It's episode number four, The Tears of a Star. And to this day, we remember Muriel Baldrige. The mountains all over the world are full of life, beauty, and mystery. She was bright, beautiful, and to this day, missing. She is 36-year-old Candy Green Gonzalez, and she was last seen in Prestonsburg, Kentucky on June 1st, 2021. She disappeared after wandering into the backyard of a property on Abbott Creek Road, which is a small outlying community very close to Prestonsburg. She was in a visible state of distress and disoriented before she ran away into a creek. Candy Green Gonzalez of Paintsville was born December of 1984 to parents Betty Jo and David Dixon. In 2009, Gonzalez graduated from the Lexington Healing Arts Academy in Lexington, Kentucky with a therapeutic massage and bodywork certification. In 2011, she graduated from Spencerian College with a Bachelor's of Science in Kinesiology. At the time of her disappearance, Gonzalez worked as a self-employed licensed massage therapist and lived with her boyfriend of two years, Jeff Blackburn, in a house in Prestonsburg, Kentucky. Gonzalez has a five-year-old son whom she shared custody with her ex-husband. It was on the afternoon of June 1st, 2021 that our story began. Gonzalez was thrown out by her boyfriend of two years from the house they'd shared together. She subsequently wandered into the backyard of a property on Abbott Creek Road, less than a half mile from her own home. She was recorded by someone on the property, pleading for help and asking people to call her mother, in a visibly distressed state. When the calls made to her mother's phone went directly to voicemail, Gonzalez walked back and forth, before eventually running through the backyard and into a creek. Gonzalez never returned home and has never been heard from since. She disappeared without any of her personal belongings or even her cell phone, and she was only wearing a one-piece pink romper outfit and sandals. On June 2, 2021, Gonzalez's family filed a missing persons report with the Kentucky State Police Pikeville Post 9 when they couldn't contact her. Gonzalez's shoes were found by her family in a nearby creek after she disappeared. Authorities conducted searches in the area, where she was last seen, using helicopters, drones, tracking, and cadaver dogs, but found no sign of candy. Police said that they found no evidence, means, or motive of foul play in Candy Green Gonzalez's disappearance. The case is ongoing, but there's currently no promising leads, 
a $10,000 reward has been offered by Candy Gonzalez's family for information that would lead to her whereabouts. Well, the circumstances of Candy Green Gonzalez's disappearance remain unclear, and her case is currently classified as missing and unsolved. Candy is a white female with blonde hair and blue eyes. She's about 5 foot 8 inches tall and weighs 110 pounds and was last seen wearing a pink one-piece romper outfit and sandals. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Candy Green Gonzalez, please contact the Kentucky State Police Pikeville Post 9. You can do that by dialing 606-433-7711. Again, that's 606 606- 433-7711. It's hard to comprehend losing someone we love. It's nearly impossible. But can you imagine losing someone you love and never knowing what it was that happened to them? It's something that lies out of reach for most people's minds because we simply either can't fathom it or we don't want to. Either way, it seems as if it's a nightmare within a nightmare. A place where all levels of hell meet and combine the worst possible torture that it could inflict on someone. That is exactly what has been going on since August 26th, 1995 to Sarah Teague and her family. Sarah is the mother of Heather Daniel Teague, who went missing in August of 1995 under what could only be called the most mysterious of circumstances. This episode, which is number 25 on the Mountain Mysteries, has nearly every imaginable element of mystery and unanswered questions that you can think of. From a man across the river that claimed to have a telescope mysteriously pointed at just the right location at just the right time to see Heather sunbathing. To the mysterious man with a gun order her up and away from a small beach area to a statement that she was a confidential informant with too much information on all the right people in all the wrong ways. This is a very very small part of her story. But for nearly three decades, at the time of this episode, she's simply vanished. No leads, no details, and hope, while still there, draws them. To this day, this remains one of the most downloaded and listened to episodes The Mountain Mysteries has ever produced. Listening to it, may help you understand why. You'll hear Sarah, Heather's mom, talk very candidly about this case, her daughter and herself, and the circumstances that surround it. And here's a little known fact. We actually traveled to Sarah, Heather's mom, and the interviews that you hear were conducted in Heather's room. To say that was an experience... Well, that's a mild understatement. They say that the price of this life is one death. Everyone must pay it. There's no exceptions. But with that death comes hidden pain. 
The pain that the ones we love and leave behind must suffer through. It's a pain that we would take away if we could. But that's also built into the price of living. But so is joy. The birth of a child. A wedding. A new relationship. The first days of warm weather out of the winter. The touch of a friend. A smile. Something that you didn't expect happening that happens. Life is a culmination of these experiences. The good, the bad, the worst, the great. Whatever you choose to call it, life is a gift. It's a gift meant to experience to the fullest in our own way. And never subscribe to what makes other people happy. Only you can do what makes you happy. After all, it is your life. And you only have this one to live. So make the dash between the date that you were born and the date that you went home something to make others smile, laugh about, and to remember all the big things that you did in that small dash and show them what it stands for. The mysteries in life propel us. They keep us motivated and inspire curiosity. So, as always, with love and respect, until we meet again, I'm Chris Lohn for The Mountain Mysteries. I hope that you'll like, share, and subscribe to The Mountain Mysteries and visit us online at themountainmysteriespodcast.com and don't forget to check out the gatherings Thursday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on all of our social media pages. Stay mysterious. Follow The Mountain Mysteries on facebook.com forward slash The Mountain Mysteries on Instagram at instagram.com forward slash The Mountain Mysteries and support us on Patreon. Links are on the homepage, www.themountainmysteriespodcast.com. If you enjoy The Mountain Mysteries, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. That helps us so much. You can also help support The Mountain Mysteries by visiting our sponsors, whose links are below, or by donating at Patreon or the PayPal link shown in the notes. Patreon subscribers will receive early commercial-free episodes and more. of Sloan Studios. Stay mysterious. Hi, I'm Chris Sloan, the creator, producer, and the voice behind the Mountain Mysteries. If you would like a unique voice for your business or organization for either social media, radio, or television, something that stands out and is different from the rest of the pack, that will work with you to sell the benefits of your product or service, and get people into the door or on your webpage, then feel free to give us a call. We can also do telephone voices on hold. And it's all a lot more affordable than what you'd think. Sloan Studios is a lot more than just creating the podcast that you hear with the Mountain Mysteries. We'd love to be the voice of your business, but it is limited. For example, we will not do competing businesses within 100 miles of each other. Let's say that you are an attorney or you have an auto dealership. If someone else comes to us wanting a marketing campaign, they would have to be at least 100 miles away from your business. 
so spots are very limited. If you want a different and unique voice, something that will stand out on the radio or your social media page, then call 606-331-0029 or email us chris.sloan at icloud.com. That's C-H-R-I-S dot S-L-O-N-E at icloud.com. Let us work to promote the benefits of your product or services. 